Welcome to Perry's Leadership Couch. Either you're thinking of firing all your employees, locking yourself in the bathroom to scream in disbelief, or starting up your own business and have not slept in the last month, we have the stories from the people who are there or have been there. This is your dose of leadership excellence and survival. Well, welcome to the first episode of this new podcast. I'm Perry Schumacher, and it's valid for you to have a question of what is this podcast? Why should I listen? And who are you? And in the best uh, question I got asked when I was starting this podcast and saying, look, I'm going to start doing this uh, seriously and, and see where it goes, is a close friend of mine goes, what are you, bored? Is that what you're doing? Why are you doing this? <laughs> so... I would partially say yes, that, that's part of it, but uh, it gives me an excuse to talk to very interesting people and, and maybe reconnect with people I haven't connected with for a long time. And by doing that, because these people are so interesting and had such interesting lives building businesses and selling them and managing people, that it would provide people some nuggets that could help them out and help me out too, by the way. I mean, these are my friends beyond just for the reason that they're great people, but they, they also provide me tremendous advice. And so then you go down to the question of, of why me and, and who am I and why should you listen to anything I have to say or, or watch me interview people? Well, my background is, you know, I'm, I'm in my mid forties now. And when I was a kid, when I grew up, my dad built, operated, maintained power facilities, and he did work in, in oil for a while. And before I was 16 years old, I had the pleasure of figuring out what it was like to live in seven different countries in four different languages, of which I learned three of them. Japanese, I just couldn't learn. But English, Espanol, and Portuguese, I was able to learn without a problem. Granted, Spanish and Portuguese are pretty close to each other, so you might want to count it as speaking two and a half languages, um, but <laughs> close enough. Officially, it's three, so I'm taking three. And yeah, so when I was a kid, he, he drug me around the world a little bit as, as he was working. Now, for a while there, he was a single father trying to figure out what to do with this kid that was, was everything but a model citizen. Uh, when I grew up, but just to give you an example of how rambunctious I was, we spent some time in Japan. And when I was in Japan, I was seven years old. And I met this gentleman uh, by the name of Ricky, a gentleman, kid. We were both seven years old. My dad met his dad. And his dad was a very, very, very wealthy person in Japan. I, I do not remember his name. And I've lost contact with Rikia, although I, I, I really wish I still knew him. Not, not because his family was very rich, but because Rikia and I at seven years old had the same proclivities of getting into trouble. So for some reason, and I don't know what reason it was, but they, they thought it would be a good idea to give us these little smoke grenades. You know, you know those ones when you were a kid, they're just these little round smoke grenades and and you light them on fire, and, and you get yellow smoke and red smoke. And and we also got one of those, uh, you know, they actually look like a grenade, but you'd scrape them against the ground or, or light them on fire, and they also release smoke. So Ricky and me and, and our seven-year-old wisdom sat at a corner looking at this English school. And, uh, and the windows were open, and we had decided that uh, that school was under attack and we needed to smoke it out. <laughs> So I'm not too sure uh, Japan misses me. Uh, maybe Rikia does, but uh, I, I'm pretty sure Japan uh, does not. And so 
growing up through these different parts of the world and, and being as rambunctious as me uh, led me to, to work at a nightclub, actually, when I was 14 years old in, in Argentina. As, as, as you can see, I wasn't growing up to, to become a model citizen, per se, or, or leadership like I, like I am now uh, with the background that, that I've had helping people. But, you know, when I, was, when I was that age, I actually ended up working in a, in a nightclub. I think I was 14 or, or maybe 15, but I'm pretty sure I was around 14 years old. And the way it worked in Argentina at that time is that, you know, between eight o'clock at night until midnight, uh, the, the underage people could go to a nightclub. And so it would just be a party with lights and music and you'd go dance and everybody would be scared to, to slow dance with each other. And, you know, back then you, the slow dance music was always at the end, you know, so you would dance and get all sweaty and then the slow dance music would come on. It'd tell you two things. One, the party is about to be over and and two, it's time to find the girl that you like to slow dance with if you want to, or if you can get her to agree to. It was a different life uh, back when I was a kid than it is now. And the reason I worked for that nightclub is that because I could, uh, I could sell tickets, and if I sold tickets, I made money. And if I made money, I could buy cigarettes. And I don't know if any of you are familiar with these parisianes, and th those are uh, black tobacco cigarettes. So I didn't just smoke. I, I smoked the, the strong cigarettes on 14-year-old body probably didn't appreciate that too much. And from there and going through a, a number of other difficult things that I've put my father through, who I am still thankful uh, it has not killed me, he decided that maybe, just maybe, it'd be a good idea if I lived in a country that had a couple more rules. So he sent me back to the United States to live with my grandfather. And my grandpa is a, a good man. I'm not sure I heard him say more than maybe five cuss words in his entire life. He married a woman who went clinically, uh, she was mentally ill, and he stood next to her uh, his whole life. And th that's just the type of man he was. See, my grandfather was the type of man I wish that I could be 10% of. That's, that's the type of person my grandfather was. And, and he's no longer with us. And so I was told that he needed help which was not true because my grandfather never needed help. But I bought into it. I loved my grandpa, so I came. Because of my uh, less than stellar background, when I came to the United States and tried to go to school and they looked at my school records, as far as they were concerned, I was in kindergarten. <laughs> so, so long story short, I end up taking a whole bunch of tests, a whole bunch of tests to figure out where this kid could be. And by the time I was 16 years old, I was going to college. And the college I went to is called Crash for the Nations. Uh, this is a Bible college in, in Dallas, Texas. And the great thing about going to Bible college was that if you're religious or not, and again, I'm not here to try to make you uh, love Jesus or anything, but that book has a lot of stories of people who went through a lot of hardship and there is a lot of wisdom to be gained through the Bible. Um, whether you believe in Jesus or not, the stories that are in there pr provide you with a tremendous amount of wisdom. I mean, no matter what problem you're going through, I guarantee you they were going through something worse. They didn't have technology. They didn't have things the way that we have them now. There was no real organization. Um, so they they dealt with with true problems and just kind of reading how they went through them and and just learning history gives you great lessons to things that you can do with what you're doing now. So that, that's really what I learned the most 
as I went through Bible college, because you had to learn the stories, you had to study the time, you had to understand the person that was writing that particular book, who he was, or you know, what was he going through, what was his background, where was he living, how did the people during that time live, what did he mean when he sent this, and what was it in Hebrew, and did somebody mistranslate it? So going through that process, you, you learned a lot, um, a lot about research, a lot about people, a lot about cultures that are cultures that you, you couldn't see today because they were ancient cultures and a lot about the, the challenges they went through and, and how they overcame them and their belief systems. And so I left Bible college with that and, and I had a couple of options there. One of them was to go become a youth pastor. And the problem I had at the time is that I was graduating at, at a little bit over 18 years old. And, you know, an 18 year old boy as a youth pastor, uh, you know, I mean, I'm sure there's some out there that can do it, but I, I, <laughs> I wasn't one of them because girls were pretty. Uh, so that was that was a bit of a challenge there when I was offered to to maybe become a youth pastor. And I was old enough or young enough to remember Jimmy Swagger. I, I knew I didn't want to be Jimmy Swagger. So I decided that maybe going into the ministry at 18 years old when my hormones are doing all kinds of stuff and leading a youth group that's going to have a bunch of girls that I think are pretty may not be the wisest of decisions that I could make. So instead of going to Bible college, I mean, instead of become a, a youth pastor, I chased my girlfriend at the time to California. And in there, I, I found a job doing studio work, and that's what I did in college. I studied the Bible, and I was in the audio team. And you know, interesting note is that the person who used to sing at that college is Kevin Jonas, Kevin Jonas being the father of the Jonas Brothers. I doubt he remembers me, but I actually did sound for Kevin when he was uh, singing over at Christ for the Nations. And uh, obviously his kids did well for themselves. They're a little bit smaller and shorter back when I got to meet them, but <laughs> they've grown up quite a bit now. And so I go off to California chasing my girlfriend get this job in a studio because that's the only marketable skill that I had. And I was making something around four twenty-five, maybe $5 an hour. And to me, that, that just wasn't something that was acceptable. And, and even in California back then, it just wasn't enough to survive off of. So what I really wanted to do was not make minimum wage. So I answered an ad in the newspaper something along the lines of, would you like a great job with great benefits? And when you're making minimum wage, uh, the answer to that is always yes. So, so I, and yes, I picked up the paper again. I'm in my forties back then. There, you didn't really have online jobs. I mean, the internet still went when you wanted to connect to it. So, so I went to this interview and it's this place called Jenny Craig. So if you ever want to lose weight, I suggest that you go to them. They're actually pretty good at helping you with that. And, and got my first, uh, I guess you could say, real job. And in about three months, I managed to, to work my way into management, you know, being 18, almost 19 years old. At the time, from my understanding, I was the youngest manager Jenny Craig ever had. And from that point until today, I have been either a manager or in management or doing management consulting. Um, so I have about a good over 20 years experience learning the easy way and the hard way on how to build teams of effective people. And while I've been doing this, 
throughout my journey, I have met several mentors, friends that I just hold dear that have helped guide me throughout the way. And what this podcast really is about is an opportunity to reconnect with all of my friends. That's one thing that it's about that have went through this and share the stories and experiences that we had getting to where we are today. And hopefully that'll be useful to you. Now we've, my friends, they, they range the gamut. I have friends that are psychologists that understand humans. I have friends that have started up businesses and sold them and, and now they're millionaires and, and they've been through the grind. I have friends that are currently grinding uh, to get their companies up off the ground. I have friends that are in a good spot that are serial entrepreneurs that have started up, failed, started up, had success, started up, failed. You know, I'm kind of like that friend, um, but I have friends that are also like that, that have spent a, a lifetime doing nothing but building, selling, and failing and succeeding at starting businesses at small uh, and to large scales. And obviously I have friends that sit as, as executives in very large companies that that I trust that, that have just done tremendous jobs of building their teams. And the great thing about it is that no matter where you are today, there, there was a journey you took to get there. And through that journey, not only is, does it tend to be entertaining to, to talk about the war stories uh, of getting to where you got today, but there's also so many nuggets of wisdom when you get somebody with a, a little bit of gray hair, somebody who's walked that walk for a while, been down that road and talks to you about how walking that road was. There's a lot of nuggets that you can gain from that. And I'm one of those people. Uh, just recently, the most recent project that, that I came off of, I was a general manager for a power plant in Africa. And even the story of me getting there is, is, is absolutely crazy. I, you know, at the time, we, that was the biggest contract in our, in our company's history. So obviously, it was the most important thing that that we had was that power plant in Africa. And we had a team that mobilized to be able to go there and, and take over that power plant. And unfortunately for us, that team had failed. When we found out they failed, it was a couple of weeks before we had to take over operations, which means we had to stand up a company, have the finance department together, everybody needed to be trained. And, and I happened to be sitting in, in uh, Kurdistan. If you don't know where Kurdistan is, just look at Iraq, look at the top part of it. That's pretty much Kurdistan. Um, so while I'm in Kurdistan, there's decisions have been made that I'm going to go there and somehow miraculously fix this thing. And while I'm being told that, I have a cyst. And this cyst has is, is gotten infected. It's big. It hurts. I, I'm, I'm at the point to where I can hardly walk. I'm running all kinds of fevers because a cyst is basically a big infection in your body. And my body is just not happy with it. So I need to get on a plane and get down there the next day. And I need to get rid of the cyst because I don't think I can travel with it. So I go to a doctor in Kurdistan. And so the driver takes me, drops me off to where this doctor's office is supposed to be. And, and I don't know if you're familiar with the alphabet uh, over in Kurdistan, but it looks nothing like our alphabet looks like. And so I'm standing there in the middle of this, uh, of what I can say are four-story old, buildings and there's signs in multiple colors written what I could assume is Dr. So-and-so, but of course I can't read any of it. So, so I'm just standing there going, I hope I can find the doctor. And I'm walking around speaking uh, English to people who don't necessarily understand me. 
uh, you know, kind of pointing, you know, like I have pain, cyst, I need to find doctor and, and showing them this card that's written in a language they can understand. And I find this doctor and him and I uh, talk and thank God he spoke good English. And he says, yeah, look, you know, we, we can't give you any kind of topical uh, anesthesia for this operation because, you know, it's not going to do anything. It's, a, it's an infection. So we really kind of have to knock you out to be able to to operate on this. And, you know, I told him, I said, look, I, I've got to go through the middle of an Iraqi airport here in the northern part of Kurdistan, and I've got to travel all the way to South Africa. And and it's this is just, I'm going to have to make my way through airports. I can't be knocked out. I, I have to have my wits about me to get from point A to point B. And I'm leaving tomorrow. I've got a ticket, and I don't care what happens. My butt's on that plane because I have an emergency I have to solve over in, at the power plant. And so after much negotiation, the doctor has agreed that he thinks I'm just crazy enough to do it without anesthesia, which was my proposal to him. So he says, okay, well, if you're crazy enough to, to do it, I'm crazy enough to do it too. And he goes, okay, now I just need you to go to the hospital. Because again, I'm at the doctor's office, so there isn't, they're not doing the surgery there. And this is a surgery. It's not just as simple as, as cutting the cyst out. It's not as topical as, as, as you'd want it to be. So... He tells me, you know, go over to this to this hospital, uh, and and I, I agree that I will go to the hospital. He kind of gives me directions to it. It's about seven eight blocks away, and, and at this point, it's starting to get dark. So here I am, an American in Kurdistan, with a painful cyst that has me to where I can hardly walk, walking down a few blocks, five six seven blocks, whatever it was, I don't quite remember, at night, with signs in a language I can't read with people around me who don't necessarily speak English. So <laughs> I bumbled into two hospitals that weren't the right hospitals. And again, I'm, he wrote it down to me in a language that other people could read. And eventually I find my way to this hospital. Receptionist speaks English. I'm super excited. Somebody can talk to me and help me get to where I'm going. So she goes, yeah, yeah, we know who you are. We're going to take you to where you need to go. And up I go into, into an elevator to go get the surgery. So they put me in a room tell me to put on this nice little blue, uh, blue jacket. So I put on my little blue jacket and, and they say, okay, look, the, the, the anesthesiologist is coming. So I don't need an anesthesiologist. I agreed that I'm going to do this with no anesthesia. Nevertheless, the anesthesiologist comes in and, and tries to talk to me about how he's going to give me anesthesia. And, and I explained to him that the doctor and I had agreed that I cannot have anesthesia because I'm going to be doing something I need to use my head for. And, you know, they're like, well, we could do a spinal thing. And I'm like, yeah, but then I can't use my legs for an extended period of time. And then how do I walk through an airport? You know, and again, we're in Kurdistan as much as I love them and they protected me. And I have a great love for the Kurd Kurdistani people. I, I want to be able to move just in case, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's just one of those things. And. So eventually he, he, you know, kind of sort of disgusted, calls a doctor. The doctor tells him that, yes, indeed, we're, we're not going to use anesthesia on the guy. He just looks at me like I'm nuts and walks out of the room and closes the door behind him. So the doctor shows up. He says, all right, Perry, we're ready to get started. And I don't know if you've ever been cut into without anesthesia, but let me tell you what it feels like. It feels like you are on fire. Uh, this is the first time I've ever experienced such a thing. And and yeah, pretty much if you ever want to know what it feels like when somebody just cuts you open slowly, uh, that, well, that's, that's what it feels like. It feels like you were on fire so much. So I was laying down and, 
and I'm just feeling this this flame as as he's he's cutting me, and I just turned around and looked at him and said, "What do you got, picante sauce back there or something? Could you stop it for a minute?" <laughs> and the doctor started laughing and kept on about his way. And so we're done, and and by the time I'm done, there's people actually there to pick me up and make sure everything's okay. Uh, the doctor takes off, and and then the ward doctor, whoever you know, the people who who look after the floor. You know, he comes in and at that point I've got blue jeans on. I'm ready to go. It's like, I've got to go to the airport. I don't have time. Out I go. And he tells me that I am not allowed to leave the hospital. Um, you know, there's a minimum stay of, and I forgot how long it was, but it was, it was a stay that was longer than, than would allow me to get on my airplane. So he says, you know, you, you shouldn't be able to walk now. And I try to explain to him, no, no, I can walk. I'm good. I didn't have anesthesia. He doesn't believe me because who gets operated on without anesthesia? And my doctor apparently did not inform this gentleman that I'm that crazy guy. So I literally jump up uh, out of the bed with my jeans on and start dancing in front of him and said, look, I'm good. <laughs> Meanwhile, the people that were there to pick me up are just laughing and rolling their eyes off. The doctor calls the other doctor and off I go to the airport. That is how important it was to me to be down there at the power plant to help lead uh, these people to, to get a good result from the, the O&M contract. So for some of you that look up at your bosses and think that they're not willing to sacrifice, well, I'm not one of those type of bosses. If I have to be somewhere to get something done, I'm going to be somewhere to get something done. And, you know, my grave is going to have to stop me from doing that. And, and that's just generally the way that, that I tend to operate. If it's, if it's an emergency, if it's not an emergency, good luck. I'm, I'm not answering my phone, but if it is an emergency, you have my absolute full attention. So I get on this plane, go down there and, uh, and it was nice, a nice flight, you know, obviously in, I was in a lot of pain uh, through the whole part and I get to this power plant. And you're thinking, okay, maybe it's not as bad as, as I think it is. And, and we walk into the power plant and I get, you know, I get a tour. I'm talking to the, to the people who are in charge of mobilization. And they take me to, uh, to the warehouse. And just, just so you understand how bad this was, I, I walk into the warehouse a couple of days from taking over the power plant. And, um, and I look around and there's no parts. No parts. So we're taking over a fully functioning power plant. We have no parts. And uh, not only do we not have parts, but uh, as I look around, we don't have shelves. So even if we had parts, we didn't have anywhere to put them. <laughs> so that was, that was the start of my journey. And the reason I tell you this particular story and, and for you to understand how bad it was when it started is by the time we got done within a 12-month period, we had received three recommendations, four, I think, the government of Mozambique, thanked us for the excellence of our operations of the power plant. The insurance company lowered their premiums due to the excellent operation of that power facility process procedures. We passed every single surprise audit, and we had three of them, full plant audits with less than a, a day notice on some of them. Passed every single one with flying colors. We had recommendations uh, to be able to extend maintenance by the engine manufacturer, which was Rolls-Royce. And we did that with the same group of people minus the management because I fired the entire management by the first month I was there and replaced them from within. So exactly the same group of people minus the management, the leadership, uh, accomplished 
great things after not being able to even get ready to start operating. And to get from point A to point B, there's a lot of war stories in between arriving to a warehouse after a surgery and seeing it empty and getting a whole bunch of awards for excellent operations. It didn't, it didn't just happen. There's a lot in between. So as you listen to this podcast, the people that I'll be bringing on this podcast to interview are dear friends of mine that have faced similar situations or gone through similar, similar struggles. And there's a lot of war stories in between them arriving and starting up a business or them taking over departments and leading them to excellent performance. So in this podcast, that's exactly what you're going to hear. Some just grisly old guys who've, and girls who've walked down this road for a while and battled it out and became successful on the other end. And we'll be talking about our journeys and and the, the wars that we fought in between, the lessons that we've learned. And that's what you're going to get. And through that, I think you'll, you'll be able to do a couple of things. One, get a few gems. Two, go, oh my God, I know exactly how that feels. <laughs> I'm there right now. You know, or I've been through that. So you'll be able to have a drinking buddy in the podcast, right? To, to somebody who's been through what you've been through so you don't feel so alone. Sometimes it is lonely at the top. It's nice to have other people at the top to get around and, and talk about how lonely it is so you feel less lonely. Oh, So that's essentially what you're going to be getting inside of this podcast. So I really, really hope that you enjoy the guests I bring on. I have no doubt whatsoever that it's going to provide some level of value to you. Uh, currently, there are no, there's no advertising on this podcast. It's just starting up, so you'll be able to listen to a podcast advertising free. And, and get some value from it and, and hopefully some entertainment. As you can tell, I'm a bit of a goofball. So there'll be some entertainment, at least from my side, even if I get a guess, it's overly serious. But, you know, maybe I'll just send a beer, get them drunk, <laughs> get a better conversation. Well, thank you for listening so far. And, and that's what you're going to get from the podcast. If you like this, uh, please go in. And, and I don't know how these things work that well. I think you follow. I follow a couple of podcasts. So follow the podcast. Um, there will be a, a link eventually to where you can sign up to our email list. We'll send you an email out when we get a new podcast. I'm assuming there's going to be about one a week because it's, it's hard to schedule time with these interesting people and, and talk to them and, and give, have them give of their time for free, uh, to, to help you and give you something to listen to. But, uh, you know, luckily some of them owe me favors, so we'll work it out that way. Anyways, I hope you're having a great day and continue having a great day. Thank you for listening. Take care.